Welcome to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Every other week, we bring you Catholic teachings and stories of faith from people throughout the diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. This is the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Uh, Just as a reminder, if you didn't get a chance to listen to our last podcast, please do so. Chez and I had the pleasure of interviewing two of our seminarians, Aaron Slayback and Peter Jutras, and uh, what an incredible interview that was. They uh, filled us um, with uh, so much joy and hope in talking about their experiences as seminarians and their discernment process, and so please check it out. It really was wonderful. Um, Chaz, how are you today? I'm good. Speaking of that, I, I'm spoiled as a cathedral parishioner. We're getting Peter, we're getting uh, Peter Dutris to hang out with us for a whole year. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, he's going to be doing his pastoral year at the cathedral. So yeah. yeah, we had a great conversation. Looking forward to more with him. And Definitely. right, it was really cool. Definitely. Well, awesome. Um, we're back. It's another Bishop podcast. It is. We're turning the page. <laughs> New Testament time. Yes. Um, and guys, I mean. We're going to go over the Gospels and Acts in one single episode, so prepare <laughs> yourselves. But it's it's good as always. Um, as as we're used to doing, though, guys, we're going to start out with how we're doing in our lives. And that first line from Gaudi Mitzbez, which goes, The joys and the hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and the hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. So, Suzanne, new month. What's going on? New month. Gosh, so much happening this month. You mm-hmm. know, we're coming up at the end of the school year. So I know kids are getting excited. I know mine are anxious. Um, my son finishes up this week. He'll be home from college for the summer. I'm excited about that. And my daughter's got finals from Catholic High in a couple weeks later. And then, you know, all the fun activities that happen. My nephew, John, is graduating from Catholic High here oh, cool. in uh, in two weeks. And uh, and then we've got the St. John Sunset Run coming up on Saturday. So That's a good one. It's it a great is. fundraiser. It yep. is a great fundraiser. Father John and his band are going to be out there after the race, um, <laughs> rocking and rolling. So, hey, if any of you all have... Uh, you know, have want to have a great night and have you know no other plans for Saturday? Please come and join us at St. John. We'd love to see you there. If you don't know Father John LeCarrie, <laughs> this is not like a joke band. No, this not is, at all. <laughs> Father John is like a legitimately great guitarist, great singer, great Absolutely. songwriter. So uh, he won't disappoint you for sure. Yeah, that's true. So, what about you? What's going on? Highs, lows in your life? Yeah. Oh, uh, mostly just. Great positives. So uh, some anxiety that was for uh, friends of ours going through a difficult pregnancy. That's mm-hmm. actually been, um, thankfully, the Lord has has done some awesome stuff and for the time being cleared things up. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on. I had a great Mother's Day with my wife. Um, but the coolest thing, the one thing that really just gave me joy this past week, speaking of the end of the school year, mm-hmm. um, prior to coming to the diocese, I was a, I was a high school teacher over in St. Augustine at a Catholic high school. Right. And I was the golf coach, St. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Academy golf coach. And I got a text this week from uh, a few of my uh, seniors, the last, the last golf team I coached before leaving. They, um, they were on a golf trip together. Oh. For a bachelor party for one of them, Adam Mabuso, one of my seniors oh there, my he's getting married. And so they were like, Mr. Filipino, we want to let you know we're still playing golf together and Adam's <laughs> getting married. And it was one of those cool things. If you're, if you're a teacher, when students reach back out to you, especially ones you got to spend a lot of time with, especially, yeah. um, it was, it was a special thing. It just made me, just made me very grateful that I got to be a, a little bit of part of their lives. And Adam, if you're listening, which you're not, um, <laughs> 
I mean, if you need marriage advice, I guess I'm the guy in the diocese to come <laughs> That's to. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if you want to see, search out your old high school teacher, but yeah, it was really cool to, to have that little, little, little thought shared through a text um, last week. So That's yeah. That's very meaningful. Mm-hmm. So shows Indeed. shows how great of a teacher you are, I think. Oh, right. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Uh, as we promised, guys, it is time. We're going to turn it over to Bishop and see on the other side as he discusses and explains the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Hello. In today's episode, we will turn our focus now to the New Testament, and in particular, the most important part of the New Testament, that is the Gospels and Acts of the Apostles. So before we do that, it's good to just give a very quick, very brief summary of what we talked about concerning the Hebrew Scriptures, that is, the Old Testament. So we started, of course, with the Pentateuch, which is where the Bible starts, with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the Pentateuch Pentateuch is concerned with the birth, the calling, and the promise of the people of God. God selects a people to be his own. He equips them with the law and worship and gives them the promised land. All of this leads to the attempt to evoke a response from the people of God. God has presented his laws and decrees, and now it is up to us to respond. After that, we looked briefly at the historical books, which is a continuation of that story. It shows the conquest and God's protection of the Israelites. It's a foreshadowing and prophecy of the spiritual conquest of the world through the church under the leadership of the Messiah. Next, we looked at wisdom books, wisdom literature, which is a shift in thinking about eternal life. they, They ask the difficult questions about life, death, and God. And the ultimate lesson, suffering seems to happen to all people. But the one who endures prevails in the end. We cannot understand God or the workings of the world, but we can endure all things through our trust and fidelity to God. The books of the prophets. Mostly the prophets called the people to renounce sin and idolatry, to maintain God's law, and to stay focused on God's promises. They consist of warnings, threats, announcements of punishment, and promises of deliverance. Their prophecies came with solemnity and imaginative language. They are especially concerned with the coming of the Messiah in later years. So they urged people to be faithful to the covenant and wait for its fulfillment. The conclusion to the Old Testament then, as is described in the New American Bible, we learned about the origin of the Hebrew people, the call of God to be his special people, the giving of the law, the exhortation to be faithful, and to return to the Lord. Also, prophecies of the day of the Lord and the new covenant. The stage is now set for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Everything points to him. So let us look at the Gospels. There really is only one Gospel. Gospel is the good news of and about Jesus Christ. The word Gospel is rooted in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful the feet of those who bring glad tidings to the world. Glad tidings means good news or gospel. Or also in Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the lowly, etc. Glad tidings speak of God's great victory and establishing universal kingship and his inaugurating the new age. This is glad tidings. This is good news. This is the gospel. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 
it talks it says this about the the gospels their central object is jesus christ god's incarnate son his acts teachings passion and glorification and his church's beginnings under the spirit's guidance the gospels are the heart of all the scriptures because they are our principal source for the life and teaching of the incarnate word our savior Paul used the word gospel when he talked about God's message. In other words, gospel was used to designate a message or a story, in our case, the story of salvation. But it's more than just a story. It is the means of salvation. For those of us who read the gospel and believe in the good news, we have salvation in Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. St. Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So that underscores the fact that it's more than just a book, or four books in our case. The gospel is the power of God, which has power and authority and the ability to bring us salvation in Jesus Christ. Mark first used the word to describe a book telling the story of Jesus in his introduction, Mark 1, 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are so similar we call them the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, same and optic, same optic, same lens. They're very similar. They see things similarly. They see things together. The authors of three of these three often seem to have used the same sources, and we believe they did, or one another's work. And I'll explain as we go on a little bit. John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, is unique using more theological language, high Christology language, representing perhaps a later tradition to teach about Jesus and his message. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. From the second century onward, the church has accepted these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the definitive gospel, or four gospels in our Bible. And the order was purposeful. We put the four Gospels first, of course, focuses on Jesus. Like the Old Testament starts with the Pentateuch, the most important part of the Old Testament, and then the Acts of the Apostles, which tells of the early Christian response to the Gospel, and then the letters of Paul and others and Revelation. It's surprising to me that Luke and Acts are separated because they are really part one and part two. As we read in the, in the first part, in the first chapters of those books, this is my first, this is the first part and this is the second part same author and everything so they're separated right in between Luke and Acts is the gospel of John but again the, the church fathers wanted to make sure that we had the gospels were set apart on their own four gospels first and then the acts of the apostles each writer had a different audience in mind in writing and putting together the gospel, audiences with different ways of looking at things and experiences. This is what might be confusing for a lot of people, and a lot of people have questions saying, but I don't get it. If these were eyewitnesses, how can they tell the story so differently? Well, we have to remember, first of all, they're not that different, right? There's just differences in uh, emphases, perhaps, for a certain account. You know, one might emphasize the reaction of the apostles, another might emphasize you know, if it was a healing, what did that person who was blind, how did that person respond? How did that person 
follow the Lord afterwards or proclaim the good news. Based on their audience, that's how it differed. So they're not really different accounts or anything. I mean, not totally different stories, but just different ways of looking at that. You know, for instance, we see, for instance, the baptism of Jesus. There are three different accounts, and really Mark doesn't even have an account of the baptism of Jesus. For Mark, as we'll see, there was no time. He just wanted to get right to the good news. An example for me that that kind of uh, has helped me to see this, why there, how you can have people, eyewitnesses even, with different views or different accounts of what happened. I think about something that happened when I was a pastor in a church in Texas. And we had, we had a school, a grade school. And um, unfortunately, we had an experience there where a bank near the school was robbed. And so the school had to go into a little bit of a lockdown. They had to put all the kids in the gymnasium. And, and it was fine. Then it was, that lasted about a half hour. But in the meantime, I went over there just to calm the kids down and just to kind of see what was going on. And I found out that I didn't have to calm them down. They, they were playing games. They were doing things. And as soon as I walked in, they all rushed up to me and they said, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And I, you know, played dumb. And I said, no, what happened? And depending on the grade level, I got very different accounts of what happened. The little kids were like, we don't know why, but we get to spend a whole extra couple hours here in the gym and it's fun and then they went away and played and another person said i think there was something about something bad happened in the neighborhood and our teachers told us to be safe and have fun in the gym so we are and then when i got up to the fifth grade you know it got more a little more um closer to the truth and the eighth grader said what i heard is someone robbed the bank they had a gun they ran across the parking lot right over there they jumped in those bushes but the police came and they got them and we're all okay and then later on, I talked to the principal and the police and found out that there was elements of the truth in all the things that those kids had mentioned. They were all eyewitnesses, if you will. They were all there. But they just told it according to their level and their audience and their interest, you know. And, and um, I think, obviously, that's a very simplistic example. And the evangelists were not children. But I, I think the point is clear. You know, yes, it's the same event, but it's told with different, a different perspective, a different emphasis in each one of the Gospels. Like all four of the Gospels, they want to tell the good news. That's the goal, is to, to report, not just report, but to announce, if you will. That's a great way to say it, to announce the good news, each according to a particular audience. And before I start with Matthew, I just love this quote it's from the Catechism, but it's from St. Therese of Lisieux, and she's just talking about her love of the Gospels. She wrote this, But above all, it's the Gospels that occupy my mind when I'm at prayer. My poor soul has so many needs, and yet this is the one thing needful. I'm always finding fresh lights there, hidden and enthralling meanings. I love that because that's my experience as well. I've been reading the Gospels, reading the Bible for all my life, and yet I'm still finding fresh insights, as she said, hidden meanings, new things. And it is enthralling. It is awesome. It is the living Word of God. Okay, so let's go through the four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Again, this is a very brief summary, and I hope that it is just piquing your interest a little bit, or a lot of it, so that you can dive into the scriptures and some commentaries, good commentaries that are out there. Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is listed first because it was thought to be the first Gospel written for many centuries. And also, and perhaps even more importantly, 
early Christ, the early Christians held the Gospel of Matthew in high esteem among the others. It is the most quoted gospel among the early Christian writers. And now, theologians, the vast majority of Christian scholars believe that it was not the first gospel to be written, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Why? Matthew's gospel is most concerned with, I guess if you have to kind of break it, bring it down to one word, righteousness. And righteousness is right relationship with God and with neighbor. The faithful response to the will of God demanded of all to whom that will is announced, and also the saving activity of God for his people, righteousness. So, you know, Matthew is talking about what it takes to be righteous. He is presenting us with the teachings of Jesus so that we can embrace that. Jesus even says there that that, that line, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this, of course, was upsetting and surprising because for them, righteousness was external. They saw the Pharisees and scribes as being righteous because they were obviously holy people. But Jesus describes that righteousness is more than external holiness. It is right relationship with God. It's being attentive to the will of God and loving our brothers and sisters. And all of this is summed up perfectly in Jesus' passion and resurrection. It supremely exemplifies both meanings of righteousness for Matthew. In Jesus, here's the quote from the Bible, from the commentary, In Jesus' absolute faithfulness to the Father's will, It is there that he drinks the cup of suffering. The incomparable model for Christian obedience is given. In his death for the forgiveness of sins, the saving power of God is manifested as never before. So that's a perfect example of what Matthew means by righteousness. Being obedient to the will of God perfectly, and then it's also recognizing God's saving power in his son's death and resurrection. Matthew's Gospel, we believe, was written for a primarily Jewish Christian audience. There are a lot of references to Jewish customs and words and beliefs. Again, from the commentary, the Church of Matthew, originally strongly Jewish Christian, had become one in which Gentile Christians were predominant. But at the beginning, it was originally strongly Christian. It begins with a genealogy of Jesus, which makes sense. Matthew wanted to root Jesus in Jewish history and told, tell it from that perspective. He starts with David rather than Abraham because he wanted to show that Jesus is the climax of Israel's history and that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the son of David, the promised Messiah. Jesus is shown to be like us in all things but sin, but also very different. In other words, for instance, he gives us the story of the virgin birth and the origin of Jesus. Jesus personifies Israel's experience in the Old Testament. He is born. He is called out of Egypt. He is persecuted. He is given the promised land, just as we were in the Old Testament. Even though Matthew was writing to a mostly Jewish Christian audience, he knew that Gentiles had accepted the good news while his own people did not. Thus, He includes a story about the Magi, Gentiles, who came and did homage to Jesus while his own people rejected him. Matthew's Gospel, it's not so obvious unless you study it a little bit deeper, but it is set up with five great discourses, five great teachings or books, 
which also model or mirror the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five great books of the Old Testament. Each discourse concludes with words that are like this or similar to this. When Jesus finished these words, he went on and did something else, and then he starts and, t- and offers another discourse. So if you, if you want, that can be a little, a little, I guess, treasure hunt for yourself to go through the Gospel of Matthew and find those five discourses that end with, when Jesus finished these words, and then it moves on to the next one. It's very organized. No other evangelist puts as much work on style and order as Matthew does. In the Passion account, Matthew talks about Jesus' obedience to his own destiny. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He has come to do this, to save all people. The resurrection brings in a new age, a new stage of history. And thus, in Matthew's Gospel, especially apocalyptic signs accompany his death and his resurrection. And I'll leave that up to you to find those. Just a couple of quick things. The authorship of that gospel is unknown. What do you mean it's unknown, you're saying? It's Matthew. It's unknown. Most most do not believe that it was written by Matthew the Apostle because the gospel quotes Mark extensively as well as another source that was known to him and Luke. If this were written by an eyewitness, he wouldn't have had to copy much from a non-eyewitness. And it's also clear that it was written later, long after Matthew had died, perhaps after this, no, not perhaps, but after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. This is just kind of from, from the New American Bible. Where was it written? That The New American Bible commentary says that a plausible suggestion is in Antioch, capital of the Roman province of Syria where they had a large mixed population of Greek-speaking Gentiles and Jews. It includes judgment of all the nations, unique in Matthew in 25. You know that, um, when I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, etc. It includes, it ends with the Great Commission. Go, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it ends with a promise similar to, to what we hear in the beginning. I really like this. At the beginning, we, are, we hear that Jesus' name shall be Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. And that gospel ends with Jesus saying, and behold, I am with you always. The last quote comes from the, the commentary there in the Bible. Matthew's gospel answers the question about obedience, how obedience to the will of God is to be expressed by those who live after the turn of the ages, that is, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Mark. Mark was most likely the first gospel of the four to be written, about 35 or 40 years after the resurrection, around the year A.D. 70, if not a little bit before. It's not concerned about or with the biography of Jesus. Really, none of the Gospels is, has that as their main concern. And that may drive us crazy because that's what we want. We want to know what did he look like? What did he eat? How did he walk? What was, you know, all of these things. But the Gospels were not interested in that. They wanted to get the good news out there, but especially Mark. There was no time to get into those details, those particulars. He dives right in at the baptism of Jesus and then just goes. It's a breathless narrative. I believe a word that is used very often, maybe most often in the Gospel of Mark, is immediately. 
immediately Jesus did this, and then he did this. Immediately this happened. It's just you, you get the sense that he just, they, they thought that, that Jesus was coming back at any moment. There was just not a lot of time to get into particulars, get this message out to as many people as possible. At the beginning, we see Jesus and Satan contending there at the, in the beginning of the gospel. And this serves to set up a major theme in this gospel. Satan will fail, ultimately. The Son of God will be victorious, and so will his disciples once the Holy Spirit comes to them. Mark's gospel is the most simple and basic of all four gospels. It's just 16 chapters long. Yet it often gives more details on the ministry of Jesus than the other two synoptics. Mark's gospel contains um, what scholars call the messianic secret. Even though he's very popular, if you will, and known among the people of Galilee, those close to him really do not know him. They don't know who he is. And you see that a lot. They're very confused. For a while, the only people who know who he is are demonic spirits. When Jesus exercises someone. Before he does that, they say, I know who you are. You are Jesus. And he says, be silent. He doesn't want anyone to be told this, to believe it because they're told. He wants them to come to believe it in their hearts. So it is midway through the gospel, almost exactly in the middle, Mark eight twenty nine, that Peter says, you are the Christ. It is a breakthrough. It is a turning point in that gospel. But as Christ, he has to counter the notion that he has come for glory on earth. That will come in heaven after following him and even suffering with him here on earth. Shortly afterwards, we get a little glimpse of his glory to come in the transfiguration. But for the most part, Jesus is seen to be on his way to his destiny in Jerusalem. Mark has us just moving toward Jerusalem and his destiny. It is interesting to note that there is no small amount of intrigue about the end of Mark's gospel. Most ancient manuscripts end rather abruptly with 16.8, verse 8, and that is where the women go to the tomb and find it empty. It, kind of, it ends with fear, though, that they're not, the disciples are kind of fearful. It may be a holy fear, but that's how that, that part ends. There's some uncertainty, if you will. This leads some to think that perhaps the original ending has been lost. Then there are two additional endings, a longer one and a shorter one. We have both of them in the New American Bible and in almost all Bibles. The longer one has been accepted as canonical from the Council of Trent. The early church fathers quoted it, so it was probably written by the second century. This includes the appearance to Mary Magdalene, the commissioning of the eleven, and the ascension of Jesus. The shorter ending was found after verse 8 in four seventh to ninth century Greek manuscripts and is included at the very end of our Bibles. There's even another couple of verses that are found in the longer ending, which seem to have been known to St. Jerome in the 4th century. It's very interesting. Just rest assured, you can read that in the Bible, the New American Bible, and the other ones that are accepted, and know that this is the Word of God. It is canonical. And the authorship of Mark's Gospel, traditionally it is ascribed to John Mark, Perhaps the person mentioned in Acts in the Acts of the Apostles, 12.12, 12, it says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where there were many people gathered in prayer. John Mark accompanied his cousin Barnabas and Paul on a missionary journey. He also appears in Paul's letters and with Peter, so he had plenty of time to learn from them about the life of Jesus. From these sources, as well as from other oral and written sources, Mark put together 
this first gospel, which would be used itself as a source for Matthew and Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Like Matthew, this was written about 40 to 60 years after the resurrection, perhaps 80 to 95 AD. Since it was written later, people were more interested in the early life of Jesus. The sense of urgency felt by Mark was not as dramatic for Luke and Matthew. By this time, since Jesus was more central to their lives, they wanted to learn more about him. How was he born? What, what was his origin? What did he say? And more, you know, give more, more details about some of the things that he said and did. And so in Luke's gospel, we have this great infancy narrative talks about the virgin birth and how Jesus was born and conceived in, in, the, in the, um, the obedience and the fiat of Mary. Of course, Luke really didn't, didn't seem to or didn't care about the, much about the early years of Jesus. He wasn't concerned about getting everything exactly correct. He wanted to show what the birth of Jesus meant. The infancy stories are told in light of the resurrection. We needed a way to express the specialness of Jesus from the beginning. And so Luke and Matthew do that. Luke's gospel is the first, as I said, of a two-part work of the same author. So it says in Luke 1, 1 and Acts 1, 1. It is a continuation of the account of God's dealing with humanity from the Old Testament. Like the other gospels, it shows how God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. Perhaps more than any other gospel, however, Luke's shows how the promise of salvation, which was given to the Israelites, is now realized in the Gentiles. Luke is very interested in history, the history of the Old Testament, Jesus as the fulfillment of all the past prophecies, and even some of the historical events of his day. He seems to like to talk about who is the current ruler, both among the Jews and in the secular world, And whatever else is going on in his day, he roots it in history. Luke's gospel seems to be concerned with the here and now, as opposed to only looking forward to the end times. By looking at both Luke and Acts together, we see his emphasis on implementing Jesus' teaching in the early Christian community. Remember, it was written a little bit later, so people were thinking of long term, about how to live their faith in the long term. Yes, of course, they were still hoping and waiting, just as we are today, for Jesus' second coming. But they started to realize this may not happen tonight. This may be, you know, something that may happen over the long term. Thus, Luke inserts the unique phrase, each day or today, in some of the sayings of Jesus. So, whereas we hear in another gospel, take up your cross and follow me, Luke says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And also we have the the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus was teaching in the temple area every day, he says. So it's clear this is, this is, we're in for the long term. The New American Bible states, although Luke still believes the parousia, the coming of the Lord, to be a reality that will come unexpectedly, he is more concerned with presenting the words and deeds of Jesus as guides for the conduct of Christian disciples in the interim period between the ascension and the parousia, and with presenting Jesus himself as the model of Christian life and piety. Also worth noting, Luke has a special concern for the forgotten and the overlooked, the poor, the sinners, the outcast, the sick, the afflicted, etc. He is perhaps more direct than others in taking on the comfortable and the wealthy, 
Whereas Matthew says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, Blessed are you who are poor, or blessed are the poor. And he also adds, Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are satisfied. He wants to elicit a reaction from the readers or the hearers. And the author, traditionally ascribed to Luke, a Syrian from Antioch, mentioned in Paul's letters to the Colossians, Philemon, and Timothy. Even the beginning part of the Gospels show that Luke is not a first-generation Christian. He is passing along what was handed down to him from eyewitnesses. Luke took much of Mark's Gospel and inserted it into his own, like Matthew did. As well, he and Matthew share another source, which scholars call Q, short for quelled. I'm not sure how to say that, but that means source, and some other um, things that were unique to his gospel. Finally, Luke's gospel ends as it began in the temple. It begins in the temple with Zechariah, and it ends where the Christians are continually praising God. John's gospel. It is the most unique of all four Gospels, as I said. Probably, we believe that it's the last one written, as it reflects a lot of time spent on what I call making sense of the Gospel, the good news, and describing it in highly symbolic or theological language. And the prologue of John's Gospel, which which begins with, in the beginning, just as the Bible itself begins with, in the beginning, the prologue sets the tone for the whole Gospel in sweeping, cosmic terms, It describes Jesus as the pre-existent one, alluded to in wisdom literature and elsewhere. Who else would dare to say, in the beginning, use the same exact words with which the Old Testament begins? It represents soaring theology. Whereas the others start with Jesus being born or being baptized and tempted in the desert, John starts with the word, the pre-existent word, becoming flesh. There really isn't an account of the baptism of Jesus per se, only John the Baptist pointing to Jesus saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. John is like, well, this is my term, a lawyer or or teacher who is trying to present his case so that one may hear or read his gospel and believe. At the end of chapter 20, this is what we read. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. Thus, John presents seven major signs, miracles mostly, that are proofs of Jesus' authority and power. The wedding at Cana, walking on water, the cure of the paralytic, the multiplication of the loaves and fish, the healing of the man born blind, and finally, the raising of Lazarus. Each of these shows something unique about Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy or his mastery over the forces of nature. As well, they are physical signs of what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free from our captivity, to feed us with his body and blood, to open our eyes and give us a share in his resurrection. Like with Mark, there are some questions about the true ending of the gospel. Some manuscripts end with chapter 20. Others include one more chapter, which is similar in style to the rest of the gospel, but seems clear to some scholars that it's a result of some editing or extra material from people familiar with John's style. Again, 
if you read the Bible, read the New American Bible and those that are accepted by the church, you can be assured this is the Word of God. Much material in the about Jesus and John is not found in other Gospels, specifically that he baptized, that he preached and ministered for years, that he traveled to Jerusalem repeatedly for Jewish festivals, and that he was put to death the day before Passover. Many think that John wrote his gospel partially to counter claims that Jesus was not the Messiah. There were already conflicts and conflicting beliefs within the earliest Christian community, it seems. There were some, for instance, who thought that John the Baptist was the prophet to be followed and not Jesus. But with his signs and miracles, John hopes to show that Jesus is not only more important than John, he is God become flesh. In addition, John shows great opposition to Jesus, especially from the leaders, kind of mirroring what may have been happening in the Christian community of his day. And then he says, or shows, that the opponents of Jesus have, as their father, the devil. Like Luke, John shows that women can be just as faithful as men in the role of a disciple. The woman at the well embodies what a missionary should be. And once again, it is clear that Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrection and the first one to make it known. The ending of John's Gospel has some really unique, neat stories. The breakfast on the shore, Jesus tells them to come and have breakfast with them in his third resurrection appearance, when Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? And it also shows another miraculous catch of fish by the disciples, and the curious exchange between Peter and Jesus regarding the beloved disciple. When, after Jesus gives Peter the command to follow him and everything, Peter says, but what about him? And Jesus says, basically, don't worry about him. I'm calling you to follow me. And then, as I said, we get this, I didn't say this, but we get this wonderful last sentence this in, in the Gospel of John. There are also many other things that Jesus did. But if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that could be written or that would be written. I like that. The Acts of the Apostles. As I said, it is like part two of Luke's gospel. It shows how the Christians responded to the good news and how they were led by the Holy Spirit to put their faith into action, into practice. From the commentary in the New American Bible before the Acts of the Apostles, continuity between the historical mission of Jesus and the ministry of the, of the Apostles is Luke's way of guaranteeing the fidelity of the church's teaching to the teaching of Jesus. It is invaluable. Also in the Acts of the Apostles, it shows the primacy of Peter. Examples that we see where we see this include after the ascension, Peter helps to validate the first decision, the replacement for Judas. After Pentecost, Peter gives the speech, declares the first truth infallibly, which is this, let it be known that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord and Savior. Peter speaks for the apostles at the Council of Jerusalem. He speaks on behalf of all and says, It is the will of the Holy Spirit and of us, etc. He presides over the church. He is a miracle worker like Jesus, the object of divine care as he escapes from prison a couple times, the angel and God helps lead him out of there, and the spokesperson, the spokesman for the Christian community. Acts of the Apostles introduces Paul to us and tells his story, which is confirmed in Paul's letters later on. 
speaks of Paul's arrests, his travels, and his impending martyrdom, and it shows the potential fate of all who follow Jesus. As well, Paul's focus on the kingdom of heaven is a lesson for all of us. After our life on earth with the Lord, we too will reign with him in heaven. Acts of the Apostles shows how the Christian community, rooted in Judaism, took the news of the resurrection and formed a new community that grew and spread so that it encompassed many cultures and nations, becoming a worldwide religion. Thus, the significance of Paul's travels to Rome at the end of the book. Rome was the capital of the civilized world, so that represented that they had indeed preached to the ends of the world, just as the Lord had asked. At first, it was mostly Jewish Christians who accepted the word, as we see in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Gospels, then some Gentiles, then became mostly Gentiles. Again, it shows the universal reign of God and the opening of salvation to all people. The Acts of the Apostles portrays the community as being guided by the Holy Spirit, the advocate promised in the Gospel, who would lead them to all truth. Through the Spirit, Jesus is alive and present in the community, then as he is now. In the next episode, we will talk about the letters of St. Paul and the other letters in the New Testament. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, as we said, a tour de force brief overview, but very meaningful overview of uh, the four Gospels and the Book of Acts. So, Suzanne, what jumped out at you from what Bishop's remarks were? Oh, gosh. Well, I thought he put the Gospels in a very um, relatable um aspect for me when he talked about the um, viewpoints of all of the students and faculty at the school when they witnessed the lockdown and robbery (laughs) across the street. I thought that that was really interesting because, yeah, I think if you've read the four Gospels, which many of us are very familiar with because if you go to Mass every week, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're hearing it, you're listening to it, and, um, but to really say that there is redundancy, but it's on purpose. And really, if you look at it, it's from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. It's a, from a different viewpoint. Each one of them heard and witnessed similar things. But, you know, I love the analogy, and, you know, I'm a big sports fan, so um, I heard that it's somewhat similar to if you're watching a football game and you've got cameras from all different angles, you know, you've got the sideline view, you've got the overhead view. So I kind of like to think of that, too, as the Gospels are similar to that in that sense. And so I thought the bishop explained it very, very well. And Mm. so... Um, it was good. Yeah, related to that, I, his point specifically about the Gospel of Matthew, where he said, um, you know, it's, it comes from the most sort of Jewish perspective, trying to speak to a, a, a died in the wool Jewish audience who are transitioning from Judaism into Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he said, Matthew intentionally structured his gospel along the same lines as the Torah. So you have five books in the Torah. Matthew's gospel, you see five discourses from from Jesus to to again. You're trying to communicate a message. Anytime you try and communicate a message, you're trying to think, who am I talking to? Right. What language do they speak? Mm-hmm. What's their worldview? What storytelling You know, perspectives are they most used to? Um, I love that other thing the bishop pointed out, how it got at the end of Gospel of John. Um, you know, the last Gospel of John is like, look, there is so many things that I have not listed in this book um, that 
I don't know. It would take the it would take all the books in the world to fill out the amount of the amount of material that I have before me, the things I saw with my own eyes, the, the stories I heard, and um, and yeah, same thing with the gospel writers. They only got so many pages of papyrus, yes. you know, and they only got so much time on their hands. So they're going to structure it according to a methodology that makes sense for the people they're trying to communicate this message to. That nobody knows about Jesus, so you got to figure out a way to tell them at least like the cliff notes or the. Um, yeah, just the, the, a practical way of communicating to them. Uh, young and old, rich and poor, men and women. Absolutely. Um, it's for everybody, not just for a certain class of people. So. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, moving into the Acts, um, you know, where you talked about the primacy of Peter, mm-hmm. and really that introduces us to Paul, and it talks to evangelization. And I think it, you know, it really... Um, it's perfect timing because it goes right in alignment with sharing the gift that, yep. um, you know, that Bishop Hawk talks all about. And, you know, I, I went back and I read his letter again and, and he quoted Matthew in there, um, 28, um, 19. And it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And, uh, you know, I think we're all charged with evangelization and, um, you know, these men traveled the world and it wasn't easy and it took years to do, but, you know, they went to the ends of the earth or what they knew to be the ends of the earth at that time. So it was, um, you know, just really remarkable how then you saw the spread of Christianity and, the message that the Lord is the Messiah, and um, it mm-hmm. just was wonderful. Yeah, I, speaking of Acts, it, it's always been suggested to me. People have always, you know, what, what book of the Bible should you start with if you mm-hmm. really just want to dip your toe in? Like, for, and, and I've had a number of people suggested to me start with Acts. Okay, and early on, I was like, "There's so many names of places mm-hmm. I don't know," and in some ways, it's it, like the Gospels are condensed enough; it covers three years essentially the plus you have the infancy narratives and a couple mm-hmm. but essentially you're looking at three period acts is 20 20 chapters that covers like three decades wow i think so it's just mm-hmm. this and like i said to the ends of the earth yes. all these places and it's a book that requires a little bit of close attentive reading and a little bit of like imaginative trying to like put yourself in the shoes of these apostles mm-hmm. and sometimes some of the stories are really really interesting i remember um reading recently it was like this past weekend at mass we had the uh Paul and Barnabas in modern day Turkey and their first their first pitch is well received. Right. And the Jewish Jewish community gets mad and kicks them out eventually and the Gentiles mm-hmm. rejoice and stuff like that. And you hear this over and over again, it's like, oh gosh. And I'm like, man, what was it like for them? They had to like walk everywhere. Oh, and wow. I guarantee they were like a couple of if you've ever been in sales, <laughs> they're probably like walking on like, Oh, are people gonna buy this elevator pitch? Are they gonna like this? And they mm-hmm. sit down, they're just like nervous, they're like wringing their hands, like, Are they gonna are gonna and then like they give the pitch and then the community is like, Yeah, this is great. This right. is and they're like, I can't believe it worked, you know? They're kind of like a, they're not traveling salesmen, but it just does require like a little bit more mental exercise. Like, what is it like for these people to walk around the world not knowing how they're going to receive? We know the story. We're yes. in the modern day. It Correct. got to us eventually, but um, but for them, like the nervousness, the mm-hmm. fear, the um, no one's ever done this before. Saint Paul didn't have a missionary predecessor to look at and be like, oh, I could just follow in his footsteps. He's like the first guy, yes. you know. Um, so just incredible story. It, it's also a great. Uh, window in the ancient world and how everything worked back then and mm-hmm. a million things to say but I, I I do enjoy every time I pick up 
and I don't know if it's the same for you, but the Gospels and Acts, particularly the Gospels, they're never boring. No, correct. Never boring. No. And, and I don't know how, like, there's something divine in that where I'm just like, I, we've heard these stories so yes. many times, yes. so many times, and they're still just not like, they don't make me just like roll my eyes. No, but know? maybe it's that familiarity that kind of gives you that comfort to a certain right, extent. That's true. Yeah. You know, I think it makes you feel at home, you know, um, taken care of that God is in your presence when you're reading these. And it's, it's just, it's beautiful. And speaking of sharing the gift, um, there's still opportunities oh, yeah. for individuals to send in testimonies, correct? Please, yes. Go to uh, pddiocese.org slash pastoral dash letter, and you'll find a place where you can submit either your own testimony to be recorded later on, um, yeah, if it works out, and um, if you want to go through it in the end, we definitely won't pu- publish your stuff immediately after recording. Um, but yeah, d- taking a look at basically what is our three-minute testimony? How was your life like before you met Jesus in a in a bigger way? What was that experience meeting Jesus and having Him come into your life in a deeper way? And then how has it changed you? Um, so share your own testimony, or if you know somebody else with a with a really cool testimony, maybe a little bit shy, mm-hmm. don't want to self nominate. You can nominate other people. We'll reach out to them, say like, "Hey, your friend or your family member thinks you have a cool story. Would you be willing to share it?" Um, so yeah, unique opportunity on behalf of our bishop in this letter to yeah. to do what they did in Acts of the Apostles and to to bring the, the story of Jesus to the world. Yeah, sounds great. And uh, speaking of uh, testimonies, um, uh, stay tuned to our next episode um, where we will be interviewing Ryan and Lane Lilly and their daughter, Hannah. Um, They were featured in the Compass magazine a few years ago. So um, if you hadn't had a chance to read it, go back and reread it. And um, but we'll be having them on the podcast with us. And I'm real excited um, for them to share their story and kind of give us an update on where Hannah is today. And she's just Doing remarkably well, if I'll give you a little sneak into uh, what we're going to discuss. So Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. If you would like to know more about our podcast, please visit gaudiumetspes.net or go to ptdiocese.org and click the button that says podcast. If you listen to the audio version from an app such as iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, be sure and rate, review, and comment. If you watched us on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe or leave us a comment there as well. Thank you for joining us.